0: Coming up, we've got some guys from CodeWeavers talking to us about Crossover Linux, as well as the second half of the XEN Advanced interview with Ron Terry, next on Novell Open Audio. Welcome to Nobel Open Audio, the podcast that connects the Nobel user community with what's going on inside and around the Nobel universe. I'm your host, Aaron Quill.
1: And I'm David Mayer.
0: And I'm Randy Goddard. And you guys got to do an interview with some guys from
1: Code Weavers, didn't you? That was great. I really enjoyed that interview. Great guys telling us a lot about great software. So uh, in the past,
0: I've run some of their older products, their crossover products that allowed me to run basic
2: Windows-type applications on top of Linux. Is this the same thing, a new application or this is, rebranded? This is the same product that they've basically renamed to make it more identifiable with Linux. It's former Crossover Office, Okay. and now it's Crossover Linux. It's and a great it's a interview. lot
1: better than BASIC. It's very good.
2: Great. And is it still kind of based on the Wine port? CodeWeavers maintains both their product, Crossover Linux, which actually sits on top of Wine under the covers. It's really adding additional functionality and ease of use to the Wine product, but they throw the bulk of their development resources at Wine itself.
0: Okay. And who did you guys have in for this interview?
1: We spoke to CodeWeavers executives John Parshall and Jeremy White. Cool.
0: Well, let's go ahead and roll the interview.
1: On the podcast this time, we have John Parshall and Jeremy White, Chief Operating Officer and Founder and CEO, respectively, of CodeWeavers, makers of Crossover Linux, and that's formerly Crossover Office. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast.
3: Thanks so much for having us. Thank you.
1: So let's start off with the obvious Tell us about Crossover Linux. What is it?
3: Basically, Crossover Linux is a compatibility tool that allows you to run Windows software applications on your Linux PC without needing a Microsoft
4: operating system license of any sort.
1: Why would I want to do that?
4: (laughs) It's a dirty job we do, but someone's got to do it. (laughs) Obviously, if you're going to make the move to a Linux system, there's a lot of very good reasons to do that, but very often the biggest barrier is that you can't run one or two critical applications that you need to get your job done, or that you know or maybe your critical application is a game, and we basically let you break down that barrier and make the transition
1: yes, and the the original name of the product, crossover Office, that gives away the critical product, the critical application from businesses that we would expect to cause resistance to move into Linux office, Microsoft Office.
3: Yeah, that's correct. I mean, the origins of the product very much were in sort of the office productivity area. You know, we supported Microsoft Office very early and then branched into some of the other biggies from an office productivity standpoint, like uh, Lotus Notes and Project and Visio things like that. Subsequently, uh, wine as a technology, which is sort of the basis of all of our products, has become a more robust and general purpose technology so that we've broadened away from that initial focus just on office productivity. And now we run lots of games and some multimedia applications as well.
1: And games are critical business applications to some people?
3: (laughs) Well, like I say, you know, uh, the the focus of the company has broadened uh, since that initial release.
2: Come on, Dave, we have to play as hard as we work right <laughs> that's right that's right
4: actually i think that's one of those little dirty secrets that no one really talks about is it's not polite to talk about games but the honest truth is that a lot of people stop from using linux because gee i can't take my laptop home and play a game All Right? so Just hey honest truth you know it's it's not talked about much but i think it's really true yeah
1: yeah halo 2 works for me
4: no <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're focused more on the the Steam games and the online games where you're playing, uh, so, you know, things like Half Life Two and Counter Strike right. Source and World of Warcraft. Those sorts of things are more
2: of our focus. Great. And underneath the covers, you mentioned wine. Is that really the full foundation and basis for crossover Linux?
4: Absolutely. we're the I mean we are the company that is essentially behind the wine project uh, the bulk of the senior wine developers work with code weavers we give uh, all of our work goes to wine in fact before it's um, published in crossover um, and a, a very important part of our mission is expanding and enhancing the wine project
1: so what does code weavers add to wine that would make me want to buy from code weavers
4: there's a variety of things first of all there's just simple spit and polish um there is also uh, specific changes that make particular applications run well. So Microsoft Office will run just right, even though stock Wine won't run it because we've got what well, will run it, but not quite as well. We also provide a few tools that are very useful in a deployment into a multi-user enterprise environment for doing rollouts and so forth and so on. That's not very easy with stock Wine, and we provide tools to do that. And then importantly, we provide support so that you know if you have a problem with Wine, well, gee, you can post on a public forum, and, and folks are pretty good there. But if you have a problem with Crossover, you can write a ticket, and we guarantee that someone will get back to you. Um, and then finally, we like to say that support is a two-way street, that folks can buy Crossover as a way of supporting our efforts on Wine.
1: I see. So, guys,
2: there are some other competing products out there. What advantage does Crossover Linux have over the competition?
3: We see free wine probably as being a more important competition, if you want to call it that,
2: yeah. uh, to what we do. Oh yeah.
3: Um, really, the, the the points of value add around crossover uh, vis-a-vis wine, uh, Jeremy has already mentioned. Of course, another would be that you know wine is is a great general purpose tool, but as is the nature of all open source projects, you never know from day to day, you know, necessarily what that particular build of wine is going to get for
1: you.
3: (laughs) You know, somebody last night may have put a patch in that fixes a bug in Counter-Strike and ends up, you know, completely screwing up all of Microsoft Office. Mm -hmm. And in general, you know, it's always getting better. Free wine is consistently getting better, but it's a very rocky road upward, and there are always dips in that road. And so, you know, we guarantee when you buy Crossover that you're going to have a a good experience with Microsoft Office because we polish our wine to make sure that that happens. There ain't no guarantees with Free wine what you're getting from day to day. I've, and that's besting that's an that value add to to a business, I think you know they want that consistency, they want the support. they want to be able to pick up the email phone if you will, and then give someone a call and say, "Hey, help me out with this."
1: Great. So the focus is office with crossover Linux.
3: Well, I'd say that the focus is is a number of different applications, but really our focus as a company is to provide good support and to provide a consistent experience uh, in terms of the applications that are supported uh, as opposed to an inconsistent experience that that you would get if you decided to go out and download the the latest daily build of wine and try your hand at it.
1: Do you get a lot of support calls about games? Well,
4: we get a we get a fair amount. Uh, certainly, we don't get any enterprise customers. Though, uh, you know, from a, from, for the enterprise customers, our real big focus right now is Outlook, Word, and Excel, and those things have been working fairly well for years. And so, Outlook 2003 is something we're really trying to focus on and, and bring people some joy with.
1: Any integration with products like Microsoft Office and Outlook?
4: Yeah, well, particularly native integration with uh,
3: Exchange servers. Uh, And and I will say tangentially here that, you know, we do sell a a product in the Mac space um, that's essentially the same. Uh, It allows Mac uh, users to to run Windows applications. Well, in the Mac space, having native Exchange server support is critically important. And so that's been a big push for us this year is to have really good Outlook support.
1: And let's talk about that for a moment. Mac being BSD-based a Unix-like platform. You've got code for Linux, a Unix-like platform. Easy enough to have ported crossover Linux wine to Mac?
4: <laughs> Easy is not the word I Easy would, is I not
3: would use. not necessarily the word. Um, we have had a consistent stream of requests for support on BSD, but consistent and low volume, I think, is, is probably the important thing to say. It could be done. We just haven't seen, frankly, enough... Demand to really justify it
1: right so talk to me about what crossover Linux looks like feels like on my Linux desktop
4: sure well in the ideal case when you have crossover Linux installed you then simply insert your Windows software whether that's double clicking on a .exe file that you downloaded or inserting a CD-ROM and then the Windows installer starts just as it would under Windows And as you run, there are a few sort of compromises you have to make. Uh, But for the most part, it feels like you're, you're really running the Windows program as though it's native on your Linux desktop. So, for example, a compromise you make is that Windows programs demand that there be a C drive. So there is a C drive, but it's, you know, a directory on your Linux desktop in your home folder. And so as you go, you install the application and say it's Microsoft Office. You know, you've got to, you know, cut your thumb and drop in a couple pups of blood and put the license <laughs> key in and everything. It all, it's all just the same. And then, you know, once you're done with the install, you'll have icons in your menus for Word and Excel and so forth and so on. And you'll start them, and they'll run just in the, they feel just like Linux applications. You can, you know, double-click on a .doc file in your File browser of choice. You save to your desktop or wherever you want to save. You know, if you minimize it. Runs goes right down to your taskbar. It really, I mean, it really just feels like a native, natural application. You know, you're not running Windows. That's a critical thing about the wine and the crossover technology. Is that all you run are the applications? So you're not. You know, installing Windows at all, you're not using all that RAM, and so forth and so on. It's just as though your Linux system suddenly became Windows compatible.
2: Along those lines, guys, how does Wine Bottle fit into that scenario?
4: So we have a term we use within Crossover, uh, thank you for bringing that up, that we call a bottle, which is where if you take that Windows environment, that C drive and the registry files that go with it, that's sort of, you can call that a virtualized Windows environment. But we found that kind of a a nasty mouthful, so we coined the phrase bottle. Um, We like that a whole lot better. So a bottle is sort of... All of the applications in the environment that they need to run, and what we do with Crossover then is we provide a bunch of tools to let you manage these bottles, um, and that's sort of the whole focus of our multi-user support. So that way you can install Office once into a bottle, and then we have a tool to let you bundle that bottle up and push it out to you know a wide range of desktops. So it makes it really easy. In fact, I think it's easier to deploy Windows software on Linux with Crossover than it is on Windows.
2: Yeah right. As I recall, it actually can bottle it up as an RPM, so you just download and install this RPM which happens to be a wine bottle
1: of office and all of the tools already tweaked and set for use and i could have multiple wine bottles with different configurations of office on my one desktop exactly yep wonderful
4: and if office gets updated you just create a new updated rpm and you push that out through your regular processes and all is good
1: fantastic Window decoration, that is going to be native Linux. It's going to have a native Linux title bar. But inside, now,
4: you've go ahead. have chosen a very funky window theme. We don't actually, by default, pick that up. You can make it happen, but in all honesty, uh, that the result always ends up being worse than people expect. So you know, if you if you pick I want lime green and 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 you get upset that your file open dialogs don't use lime green as your background, uh, they're going to instead look like sort of standard Windows.
1: I'm managing to live with that versus uh, lime green, <laughs> but uh, inside the window, the applications look just like they would on Windows.
4: Exactly,
3: because you're actually running you know the applications code natively, so stands to reason that it would look exactly the same.
1: That's an important point. Crossover Linux is running these applications natively. Correct. You're providing an implementation of Windows APIs on Linux. You're not emulating.
3: That's right. Yeah, basically what's going on here is the software application uh, during the course of its operations is always asking for services from the operating system. You know, it needs a dialog box or it needs a printer or it needs, you know, it needs stuff. And what it does is it talks to the API, which in this case is Crossover, and says, you know, give me a dialog box. And Crossover then sort of whispers to Linux and says, give this guy a dialog box. (laughs) And so, you know, the dialog box appears, and as far as the application, is concerned, you know, it's great. You know, I I got what I needed. I I guess I must be running on Windows. And so we're, we're basically spoofing the application into thinking that it's running on Windows when actually a different operating system is giving it all of the goodies that it needs.
2: That brings up the question of overhead and performance. I imagine for most of the office productivity applications, excepting Lotus Notes, most office productivity applications, you wouldn't see much of a performance hit with this extra layer in between. Is that correct?
4: That's correct. In fact, there's no theoretical or architectural flaw with Wine that would make it slower than Windows. In fact, in theory, it should be faster. And I've actually found a few cases where the sort of the underlying benefit of Linux, because Linux manages memory so much better, actually makes the net effect faster. With all of that said though, the reality is, you know, essentially what we're doing is we're re implementing the Microsoft Windows operating system and as a consequence we're maybe working a little bit more on completeness than we are on optimizing and admittedly we perhaps haven't optimized quite as well as the folks in Redmond have. So you will notice occasionally things that are a bit slower. It tends to be, you know, border cases. Uh Visio won't redraw quite as quickly and um, crossover as it will in on Windows, but you know, Word comes up in one and a half seconds, just as it does on Windows.
1: Does this mean the bad guys in Quake have got an advantage?
4: <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I, my World of Warcraft is one of the examples where it runs better on my uh, laptop on Linux than it does on Windows, because uh, the memory management is so much better.
1: That's excellent. Right. So Windows seems from the outside, if you're a Windows user, like a huge operating system. How much is there really to implement, as far as Crossover <laughs> Linux is concerned?
4: Well, there's about 20,000 published function calls in the Windows API. In fact, I have a, and now I'll I'll go into some technical detail. I have a slide I'd love to show on this. Go back in time and look at Windows 98. It had 16,000 functions in 532 different DLLs. So these are all the things that Microsoft would have you use if you were a programmer. So you look at the work of Wine and you think, oh my gosh, that's, that's horrible, particularly because at the time, Wine has only about 8,000 of those function calls implemented. So, so gee, we're only halfway there. Well, it turns out if you look at actual applications, like if you look at Microsoft Office, it only uses 42 of those 540 DLLs and only about 500 of those 15,000 function calls. And that's true of most, it's sort of like language. It's like the English language where you know you can look, you can think of the Microsoft Windows API is the the OED, and and we're sort of we just do the English words that people actually
2: use. <laughs> we the redneck terms that we right. we all just use the same words all the time.
4: You betcha. Exactly, And so so to an extent, the key is because we only focus on the applications, all we have to do is support what the applications do. We don't really have to do all that Windows offers. Thank goodness.
1: You support the general layered architecture that exists in Windows of DLLs. So if you provide the core services that some DLL uses, that DLL will work natively.
4: That's exactly right. Although actually that tends to lead into a nasty trap in that You don't have a license to use that native DLL, and we really are trying to help people avoid the need for a Windows license.
1: I see. What about Win64? Win64
4: work is coming up. We're working on it, but we really haven't, again, we tend to follow demand, and there just hasn't been that much demand for it. Most folks are still running 32-bit Windows and 32-bit Windows apps.
1: I see. If I have a genuine Windows license, can I use any of the licensed elements in Crossover Linux?
4: Yes. And that often works. So, for example, people will find that using Internet Explorer or, you know, adding Internet Explorer to an environment where you're running Outlook, for example, can sometimes make things work better. The the trick, though, is that it tends to be a dangerous trap you go down because we don't have the source code to those DLLs and so when, when, you know, the Funniest native thing. version of, you know, comcontrol32.dll stops working, well gee, it's hard for us to debug it. Whereas if you're using Wine's built-in DLL and something goes wrong, it's really easy for us to debug and fix it.
2: Right. Fair enough. Speaking of Win64, what else can we expect down the road here? What's on the roadmap and what's coming up next for Crossover Linux?
4: We've reached the point where many, many, many things work in wine. I mean, I'm fond of referring to the work that we do. You know, We focus on Microsoft Office and on a fairly limited number of applications, but we aim to do a lot of what we call collateral damage. I'm really tickled. These days, many, many things just work. And so I think people can expect WIND and Crossover to just continue to broaden and expand and to run more and more of their applications, you know, whether that's productivity applications to chess club management to you know, needlework applications to full-out games. I think really there's just broad improvements coming. Some specific improvements that we're working on right now are focused on Outlook and on getting copy protection, on-CD copy protection to work so that many more games will run. Wow. Yeah, I mean, eventually the
3: goal, to take people up to the mountaintop and then just kind of show them the Vista, eventually, of course, the goal (laughs) is that that wine is going to be this magic silver bullet that is going to let you run maybe not 100% of Windows applications right out of the box, but certainly somewhere in the 90s. And at that point, you've got a tool that really does create... A wonderful bridge for anybody who wants to, to move over to a different operating system because they know that the odds are very, very good that any of the applications that they want to run are probably going to run under crossover.
2: It really opens you know, the world for... Exactly.
3: Absolutely. And, you know, we're not there yet. Uh, we're somewhere on a spectrum of nothing runs to everything runs. Well, we're kind of in the middle at this point, but we have made significant progress over the last several years, you know, have raised that percentage by probably 10 or 20 20% so that now we're, you know, we're kind of in the 50-50 range. Give us another few years and I think you'll see that percentage get up into the 70s or 80s and you start having some pretty compelling arguments at that point.
1: Do you work with developers who are looking to produce Windows applications that are compatible with Crossover Linux?
4: Absolutely. We, in fact, help people use Wine and Crossover to port their applications to Linux so, we'll be contacted by people who will say, gee, look, we just want you to make Crossover support our application better. And then to people who will use our services in Wine to make a full out great Linux product.
1: And I guess without getting into details, any big applications that are about well, you that? Can,
4: If you look at Picasa for Linux from Google, you can see that it runs with Wine.
2: So, is the goal for Code Weavers and with the corresponding product Crossover Linux, is the goal to get people more to use? actual native Linux applications, or as a bridge, as you've mentioned, to bridge the gap between those native applications and the Windows applications?
4: Well, the goal is to let people choose their operating system freely. Simple as that.
1: Well, I guess if people migrate to Linux using Crossover Linux and then migrate to native Linux applications, you guys to go out of business. <laughs> <laughs> that's
4: fine, though. I mean, but that's that. We'll tip our hat and ride off into the sunset. Uh, you know, we just want people to have a choice.
1: What about the big infrastructure elements of Windows ActiveX, DirectX, Direct3D?
4: Yep, all of that'll work. I mean, I'll, on that on that topic, I'll just tell you the dirty secret. I mean, I'm a big, big free software, open source proponent, and my dirty secret is I like Microsoft Word better than OpenOffice. <laughs>
1: And I was going to ask, does OpenOffice for Windows work inside uh, Crossover Linux on Linux? <laughs> I, I don't know. I haven't
4: looked at that recently. People do that periodically. I think it did the last time someone looked. I know what Firefox certainly does. It runs great. Yeah, it
1: does. And a big part of that would be uh, Java. Is that going to work in Crossover Linux?
4: You know, Java is tricky because, you know, generally if you have a Java application, you really should run that natively. And when you have ones that are persnickety, they also then tend to be persnickety and require Internet Explorer. And so we will run Internet Explorer with one or the other Java VMs as needed. Um, but, it, again, it, it tends to be broadly for poorly coded websites. I mean, a website that's written in Java that requires IE is, a, is sort of by definition poorly built. It's yes. brutal about it. And so they tend to be finicky. And we get them going, but it, it's not drop-dead easy.
1: Let's talk a little bit about uh, whether or not there's any skullduggery goes on. Do you find that vendors of Windows components take the trouble to make their work not function in Crossover Linux?
4: No, we've never seen. Microsoft did modify their Windows Genuine Advantage tool to look for Wine. But they then sort of backed off from that, and and so they, you can actually run the WGA tools in wine. So they're very, very aware of us, but they are very, very careful, one, not to publicize us. They don't want people to know. And two, they've taken no action against us.
1: A case of tolerance rather than uh, vindictiveness.
4: I think, you know, I had a, I had a guy propose a theory, which I think is, is dead-on accurate, which is that they really don't want to say our name. They don't want to give us that publicity. They don't want people to know we're here.
2: Right. So from my experience, there are two versions of Crossover Linux. There's a trial version or a demo version, and then there's the full-blown version. What's the difference between the two?
4: Well, the trial version is fully functional and it behaves exactly like the full version with the the sole exception that it puts up what we hope are witty reminders that sending us money is a good idea. And it does that for 30 days and at the end of 30 days it sort of despairs that, that our witticisms weren't enough and stops working.
2: So along the lines of contributing money to the project here, when someone purchases crossover Linux, not only are they contributing to code weavers, but they're also contributing sort of by a roundabout way to the wine project as well. Is that correct?
4: Yeah, I, and I wouldn't even call it very roundabout. Our The bulk of our expenses is paying wine developers. So it's a very direct and very real contribution to what we think is an important free software project.
1: I agree. And Codeweavers must take the time to integrate well with all the major distributions of Linux, correct?
4: Absolutely. Absolutely, of which OpenSUSE and, and SLAT are too.
1: So I'm an administrator. I have a a Windows environment. I'd like to move to Linux, or my boss is telling me, let's reduce our costs here. We want to move to Linux. But I have a huge infrastructure of Windows applications who do I call? Where do I go? Well,
4: the easiest thing to do, you can you can shoot an email to sales at codeweavers.com or just come to our website, which is www.codeweavers.com, and hopefully we'll have good information there and we'll get you started.
2: Well, Jeremy White, founder and CEO of Code Weavers, along with John Partial, COO of Code Weavers, thank you very much for joining us. Happy to be
4: here. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Good job,
0: guys. I think that was one of the best segments uh, we've recorded. I sure enjoyed doing it. Excellent. So now let's go ahead and uh, we do have a second part to our XEN overview where we got Ron Terry, one of our XEN experts in. And this is a much more advanced talk that's going to get into some great detail. So let's go ahead and roll that one. Okay, Randy and I asked Ron Terry to come back in the studio and talk to us about XEN, but much more advanced and much more technical. So before we dive into this, Ron, actually, a lot of the content that we're going to cover today is covered by one of the classes you teach, isn't it?
5: Yeah. As a matter of fact, I just released the first version of an ATT course that covers Zen virtualization. As a matter of fact, we actually have two courses that we put together. There's one around Zen virtualization, another one around high availability clustering. Each of those are a two-day course by itself, and we've actually combined those into an advanced virtualization and high availability clustering class. It's a four-day class that really digs very deeply into a lot of the stuff that we've talked about and will be talking about here, as well as then talking about high availability clustering and how you can combine the two to uh, leverage the benefits.
0: And people actually get a chance to do all the stuff hands-on. Oh,
5: absolutely. That's the beauty of our ATT courses is that not only you just get lectured at, you actually get a a chance to sit down and do all of the stuff that we're talking about in the class. Okay. Well, let's
0: just go ahead and jump into it. Let's start out with maybe some best practices.
5: Yeah, great. So when we talk about best practices, we really can divide those best practices into two categories. Best practices for DOM0 or the, the virtual machine server And best practices for the virtual machines or the Dom U, the virtual machines, the guests, I guess you would call them in in lay terms. So in the case of DOM0, some best practices, really probably the the biggest best practice to talk about is to run DOM0 as lean as possible. In other words, just don't run anything extra. The whole point of the DOM0 operating system is it's there to be supporting the virtualization environment. It's not going to be a web server. It's not going to be a file server. It's not going to be a database server or an email server. If you want to do all of those things, create other virtual machines and run those in there. DOM0 needs to be just a VM server, running just Zen, Daemon, and its the supporting processes. There's a number of reasons behind this. First of all, it just comes down to resources. That the more resources that are being consumed by DOM0, the fewer resources can be used by the other virtual machines. Likewise, the more stuff I run in DOM0... The more chances I have of actually causing Dom Zero to blow up, and, and that would be bad. And that right? would be would be bad, exactly. Because if Dom Zero goes at this point in time, you lose all of your virtual machines as well.
2: You don't take just a single server down; you take multiple servers down, and you're taking half of a data center down by
5: exactly. Launching one so, thing. yeah, very very good points there. So, th- when I'm talking about running it as lean as possible, we're talking about all these extra services, but I'm also talking about X Windows. Even though the majority of our management tools. Have GUI components to them, we still recommend very strongly as a best practice to not run X Windows. In DOM0. So, most of us here, you know, we're, we're
2: command line type guys, but, you know, there is an appropriate time to use a GUI and to manage your both your DOM0 and your DOMU with a GUI. How are you suggesting then that uh, people connect and manage these?
5: I know you guys have talked about this before on, on different segments, but being able to redirect the output of X Windows applications to a remote machine, either through a secure shell tunnel using SSH capital X or even using just the X-Windows protocol if you wanted. Though the, the point being, though, is, is you can actually get the output of an X-Windows application onto another machine without having to have an X-Windows server running on, the, uh, on your server in, in Domain Zero. So that, that's what I would actually recommend is run Manager and VM Install and some of these GUI utilities on your desktop, SSH over into your server, and then just, I'd call it, backhaul the X-Windows output over onto your desktop.
2: Fair enough. Keep it as lean as possible Absolutely. on the DOM0 side and manage everything from a desktop or otherwise through a web interface, yeah, maybe.
5: exactly. That, that's a possibility.
2: Okay, so so far
0: we covered run almost no applications, if at all possible, on DOM0, even kill the GUI if possible. What about memory limitations?
5: Oh, so that's a good comment is there. So by default, when you boot... Into the Zen environment, and DOM0 is created. DOM0 by default gets all of the memory in the system and all of the hardware. And then when you go to launch virtual machines after that point, you have, actually have to take memory away from DOM0 so that we can give them to the virtual machines. Now, that can actually cause a number of different problems. You've got discontinuous memory. You've got um, the ability of DOM0 not being able to release memory fast enough. I mean, all sorts of different problems. So another one of the best practices is it's recommended that you limit the amount of memory that's given to DOM0 when DOM0 is actually created. And you can do this by passing a very simple parameter in your Grub configuration file, the menu.lst file while on the the kernel line where it says the zen gz or whatever you actually pass a parameter that's dom zero underscore mem equals and then in megabytes you define the amount of memory so you would say like 1024 m or 512 m And then when Xen goes to create DOM0 at boot time, it would create DOM0 with only that amount of memory, leaving the rest of the memory in the system free to be used immediately by virtual machines. And it it solves a number of different problems. So that is definitely a best practice as well.
0: Okay. And before we continue with talking about things that we can do to get better performance by modifying some things in DOM0, I want to pull you sideways for a minute and talk about the concept of pinning.
5: Oh, yeah. Okay. So... In the case of virtual machines and the Zen Hypervisor, special relationship to CPUs, what the Zen Hypervisor does is it instead of giving the actual CPUs, shall we say, to the virtual machines, it abstracts those CPUs into what we call vCPUs. Now, these vCPUs, by default, float across the actual physical CPU cores that are in the box. Let's say I have a dual CPU box, so a dual core processor or or two physical CPU cores in there. And when I bring up a virtual machine, and if I assign a single vCPU to that virtual machine, that vCPU can be running on one or two of those actual physical cores, depending on on how the hypervisor schedules that. If I assign, you know, that virtual machine a second processor, then you know it'll balance across and just basically balances across the, the, the actual physical CPU cores.
0: In fact, if you had a dual core machine. And I bring up three different pair virtualized VMs under there. Really, what's happening is each one of those guys thinks that it has its own dedicated processor when really all three of those processors are just being emulated.
5: Exactly. They're all being emulated and they're being shared across the actual physical processors themselves. So it could be
2: bebopping between CPU 0 maybe running one of those vCPUs and CPU 1 running the other two and vice versa. It could flip-flop and depending on, on scheduling and usage and so forth.
5: Oh, yeah yeah. exactly. And one of the things, and you brought up the concept of pinning, is Zen actually gives us the capability of going in, and instead of just letting what we call the credit scheduler, which is the piece of Zen that actually schedules what physical CPU and actual vCPU is getting its CPU cycles from... Instead of letting this credit schedule determine all of this, we can actually go in and physically pin a vCPU to an actual CPU core. Now, this doesn't mean that it's the only thing running, that that vCPU is the only vCPU running on that core. What it means is that is the only core from which that vCPU will receive CPU cycles. So we can actually go in and override what the credit scheduler is doing. And there may be actually times to do that because, Randy, you mentioned how it could be like using your terms bebopping back and (laughs) forth. Um, (laughs) That's a technical term. It is a very technical term, exactly. The credit scheduler sometimes doesn't make the wisest of decisions. So you gave a great example of let's say I've got three or four virtual machines running. Um, The credit scheduler may make a decision for some reason to put – you know, one or two vCPUs on one of the physical CPU cores and all of the rest of them on another one, which, of course, is going to be starving those other vCPUs to a certain extent for CPU cycles. And if you observe this behavior happening, you can actually go in and tune that by pinning specific vCPUs to physical CPU cores and kind of manually manage some of that. Now, having said that, the, the, the credit scheduler generally does a pretty good job of that. But you can use this pinning to also streamline how the virtual machines get their CPU cycles. For a great example of this would be Domain Zero. You could actually take and pin Domain Zero to a physical CPU core and then push all of the other virtual machines off onto all of the other cores, and you could actually get a much better performance because now Dom Zero has a dedicated CPU core that it can get all of its processing cycles from to help in I.O. and some of these other things that it does. And it'll give you an overall better performance.
2: Now, extrapolating from that, is it worthwhile, maybe in a real-world example, let's say you have a quad-core machine, you pin DOM 0 to CPU 0, you pin maybe in, in your virtualized machines, in your DOM use, you have uh, a web server, you have a mail server, and you have a some sort of high intensity database server or a transaction processing server, something along those lines the I.O. required from the CPU for something like just a simple web server that's serving up web pages isn't going to be as intensive as something that's going to be actually doing some number crunching. You know, even transaction processing, maybe not necessarily need the CPU for that, but is it then worthwhile in the real world to go out and analyze what types of guests or DOM use you're going to be running on this box and specifically pin their vCPU to a particular physical CPU?
5: Yeah, I think that's actually a great idea, that if you know the loads that your virtual machines are going to be generating, you can then use that to kind of forecast and say, yeah, I've got this, of this transactional processing server that's going to be using a lot more CPU cycles. So let's see if we can dedicate it to some CPUs and move some of the other virtual machines off of those CPUs so that, that we can give it uh, some more cycles. Cool. There's another way that you can do this as well inside the virtual machine configuration file. Instead of actually using the pinning concept, you can actually do what's called a uh, CPU affinity mask. It's basically inside the virtual machine configuration file. You can say, I want you to run on only these physical CPUs, and it the, the credit schedule will, will never try to schedule CPU cycles on any of the other cores other than the ones that you've put into that affinity mask.
2: That makes sense. Affinity meaning, hey, I like CPUs exactly. 2 and 3, but not necessarily 1 and 2 or exactly. 0 and 1.
5: Yep.
0: So we talked about pinning of uh, CPUs. Uh, what about additional...
5: Okay, so Zen actually does give us the capability of passing through PCI devices to DOMUs, to other virtual machines other than uh, DOM0.
0: So I can dedicate a PCI board specifically to a specific DOMU, and no one else has access to that?
5: Exactly. In the case of vCPUs, you have kind of this many-to-many type of abstraction where they kind of float back and forth, and then you can get in and kind of pin things in there to to get more of a one-to-one relationship. In the case of PCI devices, PCI devices are always a one-to-one relationship of abstraction, which means that if I assign a PCI device to a domain, that domain is the only domain that has access to that PCI device. And again, by default, DOM0 is gets all of those PCI devices. But let's say I have four network cards in my server. DOM0 doesn't need all those network cards. It may only need one network card to do the, the network sharing, I can actually take the rest of those three, and I can release them from DOM0. Now that they're free, I can specifically assign them to other domains, which allow those virtual machines in those domains to load actual physical drivers, whereby getting direct I.O. access and bypassing some of the performance degradation that they might see using virtual devices.
2: So my Unreal Tournament server that you know is going to be utilizing a lot of the network bandwidth is something that I would want to assign a specific PCI
5: Oh, absolutely. And I would probably put in migration to that, too, so that just in case you're having problems on the physical box, you could move that over to another box, right? Although I, like I have to, to bring this up, though, that I, when I'm kind of combining the concept of migration and PCI uh, allocation. The truth is, is once you start allocating PCI devices directly to, to do virtual machines, they no longer are migratable. You cannot move them from one physical machine to another, which kind of would stand to reason that if I'm saying, sure. hey, you're using this actual PCI device, and then I try to move that to another box, that PCI device may be something different. You know, it's going
2: to have yeah. a different PCI identifier on the exactly. other Exactly.
5: And even if I have this, all these servers that have the exact same hardware and the exact same PCI devices and the exact same slots, I still can't migrate back and forth. Okay. Now, I cool. do want to mention, though, at this point in time, so we clarify, this PCI device allocation that we're talking about here is a really cool, geeky thing to do, but it's actually not being Supported right now by Novell. So if you want to go do this, and, and I do it all the time, it's, a, it's actually quite fun, and we do it in the in the in our in our course. If you do this and you have problems, you call Novell for for support. Don't expect much response. That's good to know.
0: Okay,
1: but
5: the pinning of CPUs is supported. Oh yeah, pinning of CPUs is is completely supported. Exactly, pinning of CPUs, um, dynamic memory allocation, those type of things. It's just the PCI device allocation to. Other domains that specific piece is not being supported right now. Okay, so we've
0: covered pretty much in Dom Zero, which is limit its memory to as small as possible. In fact, what do you suggest? A lot of times, I know I drop them to five twelve. Yeah, for we DOM recommend zero. that
5: five twelve megabytes is kind of the minimum to, okay. to go with, and you could probably start at five twelve and see how things are going. Depending on what you're doing, you you might want to move that up to about a gigabyte of memory. Really, that's one of those things you you kind of need a tune for your environment. But I think five twelve is probably a good starting spot. Yes. Okay, so we
0: talked about limiting the memory. We talked about not running the GUI or really any other application unless it's absolutely needed in DOM0. And we talked about the potential
5: of pinning a CPU specifically to DOM0. What about DOMU? Good question. So I mentioned we can kind of do these best practices in two different areas. In the case of DOMU, one of the best practices that we're suggesting is that in the case of Linux operating systems or Linux virtual machines, you actually put the slash boot directory on its own partition with a non-journaled file system. Now, the key to this this concept here is that non-journaled file system because we've had that concept of having slash boot on its own partition for, for quite a while. But really, that was to, to get around the 1024-cylinder bootable partition limit problem, which really isn't the issue we're talking about here. What we're actually talking about here is to solve a potential problem that you may run into in the case specifically of a pair-virtualized DOMU and Linux. Now, to explain why this is a problem, we need to explain a little bit how a paravirtualized virtualized virtual machine actually boots, in the, uh, in, especially in the case of Linux. Now, to step back and make sure we have a frame of reference, normally when I boot an operating system on, on say, on a server under bare metal, you know, the BIOS loads first, and then it goes out and, and finds my bootloader off of my disk. The bootloader comes in, it then goes out and grabs the kernel, the initial RAM drive image, turns control over the kernel, and we go from there, right? So we have all that BIOS and that bootloader stuff happening traditionally. Right. In the case of paravirtualized virtualized domains, Zen-D or the zen Daemon actually acts as the bootloader for us. We no longer need grub. We, no, we don't even need a BIOS, for that matter, in para-virtual domains. So what happens is the zen Daemon creates, in conjunction with the hypervisor, creates this domain container, this virtual machine environment. It then, this, this is Zen-D running in DOM0, grabs a kernel and initial RAM drive image and puts it into that memory space. And then it, when it lights up that memory space, that new virtual machine or domain it actually wakes up in fully protected mode and the kernel just takes off and runs. Okay, cool. Now, the problem that, that we can potentially run into here is that that kernel has to come from somewhere, right? Zend has to get that kernel from somewhere. So either gets it out of its own file system space, which is the not non-recommended way of doing that, particularly if you do a kernel update inside your virtual machine. Well, if DOM0 is getting the kernel not from the virtual machine that you did the update right. in, obviously you're not going to have that updated kernel. So... The other alternative to to that is using a script. We call it DOMU Loader. It's a Python script that's run by Zendee. What this DOMU Loader script does is it mounts up the virtual machine disk image. It opens that disk image up. It goes in and it extracts the kernel and a RAM drive out of that and, and holds it temporarily inside of the DOM0 file space and then uses that kernel to load the operating system. Now, the reason that we're suggesting that you put your boot partition On a non-journaled file system...
0: All right, wait, wait, right there. Non-journaled file system. Just so everybody's clear, we're talking about like
5: EXT2. Exactly. Not Riser or EXT3. Exactly. EXT2 would be be what I'm talking about here. So we have the the boot partition on an EXT2 file system or non-journaled file system. Because what happens when a machine crashes and I uncleanly dismount a file system? What happens? Well, when I boot up, I've got to run through the journal to find out what's messed up. Exactly. So in the case of a journal file system, it has to roll back the journal before it can actually mount that file system to allow you to get data out of that. In the case of a non-journal file system, however... We can safely mount that file system in read only mode and still be able to get data out of that so this is why we 're suggesting that you put your boot your the slash boot which is going to be your kernel ram drive, all that stuff on a non journal uh, file system is that so in just in case that virtual machine crashes, we can still reboot that virtual machine without having to go through the mess of of rolling back a journal and, and all of these problems. So that's basically the reasoning behind uh, using that with, in DOMU.
0: And actually, in explaining that, you also brought out a very, very good point, which is the speed at which virtual machines come up and are available compared to physical machines they are surprisingly
5: fast to come oh, up oh exactly and specifically in the case of paravirtualized virtual machines they boot in a matter of seconds and it's because they don't have to go through all that hardware discovery in the real mode to protected mode transition all of that stuff so yeah exactly
0: Okay, so we covered best practices. There were a couple other things I want you to hit on. The automation of launching of VMs when a box comes up. So we've got a box dedicated to run these specific VMs. How can I make sure they run every time?
5: Oh, yeah, yeah good question. So we've actually had uh, the capability of launching virtual machines automatically when my VM server boots. We've had that for a while. It uses a script called Zen Domains. Uh, and basically, you can enable this script in Zen Domains. It's, it's not a daemon, but you it does get run during the run level when you, when you boot up and during the run level when you shut down. The Zen Domain script acts on unmanaged domains. It doesn't work with managed domains because the Zen Domain script actually uses the, the domain configuration file. Oh, when that
0: config file doesn't work if it's managed and you create it through that wizard because it's actually stored in the database rather than the flat file.
5: Yeah, exactly. So you can actually do it both ways, and I'll mention that, but we'll talk about the Zen domains first because the Zen domain script works on unmanaged domains. What you do is you put the configuration file for the domain that you want to launch in the Etsy Zen Auto directory. You then enable the Zen domain script doing the simple ints serve Zen domains, which basically just creates a symlink and the proper run levels. When the VM server boots up, Zen domain script gets launched. It looks in the, the directory, in the auto directory, says, Am I supposed to be managing these domains? If so, it will basically automatically launch any of those virtual machines that you have in there. Now, there's actually some smarts in that too that I'm going to come back to in just a second. Because when you shut the virtual machine server down, you're also going to want those virtual machines to shut down nicely as well. Sure. Right? So, The Zen Domain script actually has two options it can do. Its default option is to actually save, which is like a suspend of the virtual machine where it pauses it, it takes that memory image, and it throws it out uh, in a file on disk. So that's the default behavior. You can also configure Zen Domains to migrate or relocate a virtual machine. So if I'm bringing a virtual machine server down, but I want that virtual machine still running, I can have Zen Domains push that over to another physical box so the virtual machine is still running. And that way I can bring that box down, say if I had to do maintenance, and I can still have the virtual machines available. That's cool. Very cool. Now, I mentioned there's some smarts in Zen Domains script as well. Is, well, what happens if I've suspended a virtual machine, when it shut down and now I reboot the VM server, is it just going to try to start that virtual machine or is it going to try to restore oh, yeah. the virtual machine? Now, the Zen Domain script is actually smart enough that it will check to see, did I previously suspend this virtual machine? If so, it will restore it. If it hasn't, then it'll go ahead and just start it. So that's Zen Domains. And that's what we have. We've had that for a while and it's still available in uh, SP1. However, the ability to launch virtual machines Automatically has, has also, those capabilities have also been moved into the Zen daemon itself. So in the case of managed virtual machines, you can actually put some configuration entries in the configuration for those virtual machines that will tell the Zen daemon when it starts, it will then go look at the Zen store database and say, ah, oh, yes, well, this virtual machine says, has the on Zend start parameter set to start. It, it will therefore go automatically start up and, and you can also do the same for, for shutdown. Cool. Very cool. That's very enlightening.
0: So I've heard something about some issues with multi-cores running uh, full VMs.
5: We actually support Symmetric Multiprocessing, or SMP, in pair-virtualized domains. In other words, you can assign multiple vCPUs to a pair-virtualized domain or, or virtual machine, and it will function just fine. It'll be able to leverage those multiple CPU cores, and and everything will be hunky-dory. Symmetric multiprocessing also works in full virtualization, but there's some major caveats to this. In the case of full virtualization, if you assign multiple CPUs or vCPUs to a fully virtual domain, it basically causes problems with I.O. Uh, In other words, you're going to take a huge performance hit or, well, a significant performance hit in I-O because what's happening in the case of full virtual domains is the APIC subsystem, the advanced IRQ subsystem that we have now for multiprocessors and such, that becomes overloaded. And because the APIC subsystem becomes overloaded, you can't interrupt the the CPU, you can't get I.O., and you take performance hit in I.O. So in support pack one of SLES 10, we're actually not supporting symmetric multiprocessing in full virtual domains because of of that problem. But we are supporting symmetric multiprocessing in pair virtual domains.
0: So this is only an issue in full virtualization. Exactly.
5: It's only an issue in full virtualization.
0: And since we're talking about issues, I got one more question for you, and I I know it's going to be loaded networking is just driving me crazy in XEN. And and I know this is something near and dear to your heart.
5: Exactly. As a matter of fact, I I feel your pain. I have felt your pain. This is one of the things that's driving me absolutely crazy as well, is is the limited nature of, of how networking works in Zen virtualization. Now, just to be clear on what happens, for all of the virtual network adapters, that we're talking about, which is the default way of doing stuff, and I'm, I'm specifying this because I want to separate this from, you know, assigning the physical PCI ad- network adapters that we talked about sooner. I'm not talking about any of this now. Just para-virtualized Just, and the para-virtualized drivers. Exactly, para paravirtualized para-virtualized drivers. The way that networking actually works is you actually configure bridging or routing or something to happen inside of DOM0, and then all of the virtual machines, they send their network traffic through the virtual network adapters, it goes through this networking that you've configured, this bridge or this router or this NAT environment inside of DOM0 before it goes out onto the actual wire. Now, the scripts that configure that networking in DOM0 have been very limited at this point in time. There's basically three scripts you can use. There's one that's called network bridge there's another one that's called network-route, and another one's called network-nat. These are the scripts that ZenSource basically ships with Zen to configure that networking. And by the way, you'd find these scripts in Etsy Zen scripts. The problem here is, well, let me step back. The default of these scripts is the network bridge script which basically just creates a bridge in memory and then all the virtual machines get attached to that bridge and then they're all basically just going to connect directly to the outside world. It's kind of like in the VMware world if you uh, have your virtual machines connected to the bridge, to the bridged adapter.
0: They'll get live IP addresses as if they were physical boxes plugged into the same hub that... uh... Exactly.
5: They'd be seen on the network just as if they're another physical machine out there plugged into the normal LAN. Now the the problems that we have here is that by default that network dash bridge script only creates a single bridge. Well, what if I have multiple network adapters? Yeah. Uh, another one of the problem is um, the network nat script doesn't really work. At least I haven't ever been able to get it to work, and I don't know anybody it, else n- has n- either. have so I. It's, it's <laughs> one of those. It's like it's there, but uh, why? Because it doesn't work. Um, Not to mention even if it did work, it just wouldn't do things uh, in a in a good manner. It just it would make sense. And then the, the routed script, the network dash route, I've heard working, but Anyway, to make this, this story short, I became so frustrated with this that I decided that in the true open source tradition, uh, I didn't like it, so I'd write my own. And Excellent. I've actually done that. There's, there, I have a script that uh, is available on my website that, that will get the URL to you as well that I call network-multi-net. And what this script does is it actually takes all of the, the features from the network route, Bridged and NAT scripts and combines it into one single script. And the uh, other cool thing that allows you to do is you can configure the behavior of what you want your network to look like in a configuration file that you can just ch- simply change v- some variables in there and your network can be configured differently. So this script now allows you to create what I would call traditional bridges, which is the type of bridge that the network-bridge script would con- would configure. But now I allow you to configure multiple instances of those. So if I have three or four network cards and I want multiple bridges, I can actually configure in this, this configuration file to actually create bridges on each one of those the, those network cards. Uh, I also allow you to create what I call local bridges. These local bridges are bridges that are not actually connected to the physical outside world directly via a physical adapter, uh, like a traditional bridge is. These these local bridges, however, can be configured to be of different three different types. They can be what, what I call host-only, which is very similar to the host-only network you see in VMware, where only DOM zero, and then the other virtual machines can see each other. They can't actually get to the outside world. So they're isolated in, like, a sandbox. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, you can configure these local bri- uh, local bridge to be a NATed local bridge, which is like a NAT network in VMware, cool. which basically means that um, any of the virtual machines that are plugged into that will actually be routed through Dom Zero. But I will do network address translation on that, so they can be hidden from the outside world, but they can still get get access. And the, the third type is a routed bridge, where basically I have a bridge that any virtual machine on that bridge is being routed through the kernel or through the, the kernel of DOM 0 without having network address translation. Oh, happening. it's just
0: a straight regular route.
5: A- exactly. But it, instead of being a, in the case of the network route script, it comes with ZenSource. Every single virtual machine is on its own routed network. In my case, I have one single network that I can plug everything into and I can route that whole network. So you can choose at that point in time. So I'll, just to be clear, at this point in time, the route, it, you can either choose routed or NATed. It, once you turn on NAT, all of the, the interfaces that you had set to routed actually become natted. That's something that, I'm, that I'm, I've slated to actually fix in this script later on. But the bottom line with this script is it makes things just so much easier to use as far as you can have much more powerful configurations of networking. I have a number of people here at Novell that once they found out about this script, they like, oh, wow, I love this because I need to go out and I need to demo Zen to my people. But if... To, to customers, but if if I don't have a network connection, the traditional bridge doesn't come up and I can't have networking, and and basically this script actually solves those problems.
0: Do, does it finally let Zen work over my wireless card?
5: Yes. aha oh, there we go. I'm happy. You, you, because you have the extra, NIC. you can assign that as, as a separate traditional bridge, yes.
2: And can you mix and match then, is, or is that what you're saying Is is slated, something that you need to do down the road, where if you're unfortunate enough to have a single interface in a box and you need to do both, or all three bridged, natted, and routed, can you do it over the same interface?
5: Yes, you can. As a matter of fact, that's the default configuration right now, is that in this in this configuration file, you define which physical interface you want to route all of the traffic out, whether it be routed or natted. So yeah, you can actually have simultaneously multiple traditional bridges, multiple host only, multiple um, natted bridges, multiple routed bridges, and I actually allow you to create another bridge that I call an empty bridge. It's basically just another bridge that sits out in memory that Dom Zero isn't even connected to. So you could actually isolate virtual machines even on their own, even away from Dom Zero, so they could talk to each other and Dom Zero wouldn't even pick up their traffic. So oh, you cre- could create n- a number of different those as well.
0: And in order to get this script, again, we're going to put a link to it off of the show notes. Yes. You've also submitted it to the OpenSUSE guys,
5: haven't you? Yes. As a matter of fact, this script, in whatever form it will be in, is supposed to be released as part of OpenSUSE 10.3. Oh, very cool. Uh, so and I'm planning this. Again, this is a work in progress, and I'm continually adding different features. Uh, but I always make sure that the latest stable version is available on my website with the URL that you will post.
0: Okay. Now, I've just got one final question on networking, and that is normally one of the things that kind of hangs people up when they install kernel on their machine is when they want to go change something about the way their NIC's configured. When they go into Yast and they say, hey, I want to modify my NIC, it says, you can't because you're running Zen. So normally what I'd do is I'd then drop out to a terminal, and I'd run the zen networking-bridge script and issue a stop command. Then I can go into Yast, make the change, and then I have to run that same script again with a start. Does the same thing
5: apply with your script? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I actually leverage the network-bridge script to do the, the traditional bridges, but the same thing is, is with mine, that... The limitation you're talking about there with YAS not being able to change the networking is actually still going to be there. And it's because at this point in time, YAS isn't smart enough to understand how to manage these traditional bridges because there's some renaming of interfaces and changing of IP. Right. Addresses As it calls up, it's changing it's, all the names and everything. Exactly. Yeah. So in the case of traditional bridges, you really can't change that information using YAS. So you could you call my network script, pass it the stop parameter. It would roll everything back to just being a basic network setup. You could change everything and then you, you call my script again with the start parameter, which would reassemble everything back to the way it was. Just as a note, though, you can still use command line commands like the IP command or the IF config command. You can actually use those from the command line and change the IP address configuration without having to you know, shut off the bridges and, and shut them back on right now. In my script, however, you can go in and change some of the stuff on like the natted bridges and stuff because that doesn't do have to do that renaming all the stuff that happens with traditional bridges. Again, we need to wait for Yast to be smart enough to recognize that. So even at this point in time, you still would have to stop my networking script, make the changes in Yast and start it back up.
0: Cool. Well, hey, Ron, thanks a lot. It's great to sit down and geek out with you. <laughs> thanks, Ron.
5: Oh, it's been good to be here. Thanks. Take care.
0: So that's cool. That was another very technical uh, segment for us. I I like getting into those technical segments. Ron really knows his
2: stuff on Zen. That was a good one.
0: Yeah, he does. And and I can't say it enough. If anybody has a chance to go see Ron's advanced ATT class on XEN, it is just phenomenal. I mean, we really only got about an hour's worth of Ron's time, but his normal class is three
2: or four days. It's just fantastic. You really should check it out. That's it for this show. Remember that Novell Open Audio is brought to you by Novell Users International in conjunction with Novell Incorporated. Remember, most of our content is directed by our listener community. So please send us your requests and comments by leaving them at novell.com slash or by emailing us at openaudio at That's it for this time. We'll see you next time.